Welcome to the Imperial Africa podcast. This is the Anglo-Sulu War, episode 2, To March and Die at Islandawana. I'm your host, Elvar Ingimundersson. In the last episode, we examined the events leading up to the Anglo-Sulu War in 1879. We talked about the Boer pioneer columns, the Boer settlement on the borders of Zululand, and the British incursions into the eastern part of southern Africa. In this episode, we will look at the first part of the British invasion of Zululand and its eventual demise at the Battle of Islandwana. We left our story with Bartle Frere's ultimatum to Sedesveo Kamapande. Kamapande, just meaning son of Mapande, much like my own last name, Ingimundarsson, just means son of Ingimundur. Lord Chelmsford, then formerly known as Lieutenant General Frederick Thesiger II Baron of Chelmsford, arrived in Natal in August 1878 and began at once to plan the invasion of Sululand, months before the ultimatum was delivered to Sedisveo. On previous campaigns in southern Africa, the British had employed Allied Africans as native contingents under the command of African commanders. These units then used African weaponry and tactics to aid the British regulars. This was not a new idea in military history. We can recall that the Roman legions were often supported by auxiliary forces, known as auxila, often recruited from people the Romans themselves considered barbarians. When he arrived in Natal, Chelmsford was met by Lieutenant Colonel Durnford, who proposed a scheme to completely reorganize the native contingents, as the British called African forces attached to the British army. According to this new organization, the native contingents were split into battalions. Each battalion was to have 95 white officers and NCOs, NCO being a non-commissioned officer, usually of the rank of corporal or sergeant, 110 African officers and NCOs, and 900 African private soldiers. Each African NCO was to be armed with a modern rifle and lead nine African soldiers who were to be armed with the traditional Sulu weapons of a stabbing spear and cowhide shield. Three regiments were organized, the 1st Regiment having three battalions and the 2nd and the 3rd Regiment having two battalions each. The 1st Regiment was left by Lieutenant Colonel Durnford himself, the 2nd Regiment by Major Graves and the 3rd by Commandant Lonsdale. This new organizations provided the native contingents with improved firepower in the form of the rifle-armed NCOs, and it was hoped that with improved training, their morale and discipline might be improved, and therefore their combat effectiveness increased. The most revolutionary of Durnford's improvements was the organization of the Natal Native Horse Regiment. This was a small cavalry regiment of 300 men, mounted on horses and armed with rifled carbines. The men were Africans, many from the Basudo, Adendele, and Sikale ethnic groups, and among them were many African Christians from the British mission schools. They would prove to be one of the most effective fighting formations of the war and fought throughout with distinction. Unlike the Natal native contingent, the Natal native horse received full khaki uniforms 
and not just armbands to designate them as friendly African forces. This was the first African mounted unit in southern Africa equipped entirely with firearms and Lieutenant Colonel Durnford spent a great deal of effort to secure supplies for his men and provide them with competent officers and good training. Durnford himself received a lot of officers with little experience or qualification that he had to weed out, as many officers of the regular army thought of the native contingents as a good place to dump incompetent officers. One of these, a cocky young man, reported to the colonel and informed him that he was to be appointed an officer in the native contingent because of his special talents for working with Africans. The fellow bragged about knowing how to make the Africans fight. Durnford asked him how, and the fellow replied by standing behind them with a whip. Durnford looked at the young man and then said, Well, best make your will before you start. Now there was a reason Chelmsworth started war preparations long before war was actually declared. He knew very well that mobilizing the British forces in southern Africa would take months. The long time needed for mobilization was also one of the reasons Bartle Frere had decided to force a confrontation with Zululand. If the Zulu were later to attack Natal or Transvaal, they would face limited resistance in the first weeks of the campaign, and might be able to wreak considerable destruction on the British colonies before the British could mobilize their forces and put their armies into the field. Therefore, Bartle Frere thought it better to force the Zulu into a war at a time that the British army was already mobilized and ready to fight, and the Zulu were unprepared and their forces still in their garrisons and not organized into mobile field armies. Now, one of the people swept up in Chelmsford's preparations for war in the late 1878 was the 26 year old Lieutenant Henry Charles Hartford, an adjutant of the 99th Infantry Regiment, formerly the 99th Lancashire Regiment, and now the 99th Duke of Edinburgh's own regiment. Young Henry had grown up in Natal on his parents' tobacco farm. In 1870, he followed in his father's footsteps. His father was a retired officer of the 12th Lancers Cavalry Regiment and left for England to join the British Army. Near the end of 1878, before Bartlefrere dispatched his ultimatum, much to the chagrin of the British government who did not desire a war due to its high cost, Henry Hartford learned that the troops and officers were to be dispatched from Britain to Natal at the behest of General Chelmsford, who had requested reinforcements to be sent to Natal Colony because of an impending war with the Sulu, a war that he and his chums were of course busily forcing the Sulu into. Now because he spoke the Sulu language, Henry felt he had a good chance of being shipped out. He therefore went to see his commanding officer, uh, Colonel Hellman, the commander of the 99th Regiment, and asked if he would support his application for special service in Natal. The colonel, having full faith in his young subordinate, arranged for a new adjutant to be appointed to the regiment, and forwarded Henry's application to the war office with his full recommendation. After a meeting with Adjutant General Sir Martin Dillon, which included waiting all day in Martin Dillon's forum, because of his junior rank everyone else got to see the Adjutant General before Henry did, Henry finally received his orders to report for duty in Natal. Now during this period, Officers of the British Army were expected to provide their own equipment, and Henry now spent all day in the London shops buying travelling clothes and equipment, as well as a new pair of knee-high leather boots that he knew would be necessary for traversing the dense bushes of Zululand. He then took the train to Dartmouth and embarked upon the steamship Edinburgh Castle, which was sailing to Durban, 
in the Natal colony. His cabin mate on the voyage was another young officer, a fellow called Horace Smith Dorian, who would later command the second British army of the British Expeditionary Force in the first years of World War I, but was at this point a young officer like Henry looking forward to deployment in Africa. After arriving in Durban, Henry took the States coast to Peter Maritzburg to report to General Chelmsford. Because of Henry's knowledge of the Stulu language, Chelmsford appointed him the staff officer of the 3rd Regiment of the Natal Native Contingent under the command of Commandant Lonsdale. As this was a staff billet, the pay was 10 shillings a day, not bad for a young man in 1878. Having been commissioned as an officer, Henry was now provided with a pony and carbine. Having bought a saddle and bridle, as well as another horse, he was ready to set out for the front. Henry found that he was one of the last officers to arrive, and that the two battalions, of over a thousand men each, were already organized. Each African recruit received a blanket and a red headband to mark him as a friendly African warrior. These men received rations of meat, and these proved so popular that each battalion received much more than a thousand men. Some of the men were volunteers, others were drafted by chiefs allied to the British Empire. The African officers and NCOs had received their rifles and drills were held every day to fashion the two battalions into fighting forces and the regiment into a cohesive whole. As Henry settled into his new post, General Chelmsford finished his invasion plan for Zululand. The British government, wishing to avoid a war with the Zulu, had only released a part of the forces he requested, and his forces were therefore limited in size. Not to be daunted, Chelmsford's plan was to split his forces into five columns, three offensive, two defensive. The three offensive columns would invade Zululand, while the defensive columns would defend the Republic of the Transvaal and the colony of Natal. The front line for the war ran northwest from the Indian Ocean along the Natal-Sulu border. Chelmsford planned for his three offensive columns to cross the border simultaneously at three points and converge on the Sulu capital of Olundi, where Cetisbeo held court. The southern column, under Colonel Pearson, was to invade across the Tugela River along the coast and then head northeast upwards towards Olundi. The central column, commanded by Chelmsford, was to cross the Buffalo River near Rourke's Drift and advance directly east towards Alundi. Meanwhile, the northern column, under the command of Colonel Wood, would cross the Nakome River and then head southeast down towards Alundi. Each column was thought to be strong enough to take on the Enisulu army by itself, and when the columns converged on Alundi, the town would be under attack from the north, the west, and the south simultaneously. Setisweo was no fool, and knew that waiting for the British to converse on his capital meant certain defeat. He therefore ordered the local regiments, in the north and the south, to engage the respective columns and delay their advance, while the main Sulu army, of around 20,000 men, engaged the central column, which the king correctly assumed would be the largest British formation. He gave his soldiers strict orders not to advance into the Transvaal or into Natal, as he believed that doing so, would be politically disastrous, as it might motivate the Boers to rally to the British side of the war, and it might cause the British home government to deploy additional forces to defend its colonies. The central column, unwittingly marching against the Sulu main army, had around 1,275 infantrymen of the 24th Regiment of Foot. It also had around 320 cavalrymen and the various Natal Volunteer Corps, formed by British settlers in the colony. 
It also had around 2,500 men of the 3rd Regiment of the Natal Native Contingent, as well as some artillerymen from the 5th Brigade of the Royal Artillery with light 7-pounder mountain guns. It also included numerous wagon drivers and porters, in total around 4,700 men. We will recall that at the Battle of Blood River, the Boers had relied on muscle-loaded rifles to defeat the Sulu. Now, weapon technology had advanced and the British infantry was equipped with the new Martini Henry, 450 caliber single-shot rifles. The Martini Henry was a breech-lock loading rifle, operated by a lever under the trigger. Pulling the lever down exposed the breech of the weapon where a single metal cartridge could be inserted. Closing the lever then secured the round and cocked the trigger, making it possible to fire. Although the Martini Henry was a single-shot rifle with no magazine, an infantryman could now fire 8 to 10 rounds a minute, instead of the usual 2 to 3 rounds a minute possible with a muscle-loaded rifle. The rifle had good accuracy, up to about 350 yards, but could fire further if needed. Many of the cavalry and settler volunteers were armed with a Swinburne Henry carbine. These were short-barreled weapons that were easy to use from horseback and used the same cartridge as the Martini Henry, making it easy to supply them with ammunition. The 7-pounder mountain cannons of the Royal Artillery could fire at up to 3,100 yards. Although the British liked to paint the Sulu army as a professional killing machine, the truth was far different. Now, we have already discussed the eight great groups that were so common among the Angoni-speaking people. We have also discussed how Shaka changed the Sulu military system to transfer loyalty of these eight groups from local chiefs to the king, creating a standing army for the Sulu kingdom. In Sedezveo's time, this tradition continued. Every few years, the king would call together all youths throughout the country who had reached the age of 18 or 19 and form them into an abuthu or military regiment. They would be given a district where they built their barracks, known as an ikanda, which served as their headquarters. Each abuthu was given a distinctive name and a uniform consisting of a particular combination of feathers and furs, as well as a uniform shield collar. They would remain in the king's service until he gave them permission to marry and disperse at which point they passed from active service onto the National Reserve List. Although the Sulu kept no records of who was on the reserve and who was not, each local commander knew roughly how many men he could call to his banner. Most soldiers remained unmarried until their thirties, and marriage signaled the point at which they transferred their first allegiance from the king to their own families. In King Shaka's day, it was common for regiments to spend most of their time in barracks but by the 1870s, the warriors lived mostly with their families and only reported to their barracks when the king summoned them to perform a particular duty. When in service, they were effectively the state labor force. They tended the king's fields, herded his cattle, took parts in its hunt, and national ceremonies, as well as policing the king's subjects and fighting his wars. Each regiment was divided into two wings, right and left, and further subdivided into companies of between 50 and 70 warriors each. Each company then appointed its own leader from within its ranks, while wing commanders, the second-in-command, and commander-in-chief of the regiment were appointed by the king. Most Sulu regiments were about 1,500 warriors strong, but some of the younger ones were much larger. The regimental system of the Sulu fostered close ties between members of the same regiment, exaggerated by their common age and their fearsome reputation, and as a result, morale was high 
and rivalry between regiments was common. The spears and shields of the regiments did not belong to the soldiers themselves but were property of the state and were therefore stored in special stores in the regimental barracks. Shields and spears were constructed in the royal armories, and no individual was allowed to produce his own weapons. Like most authoritarian governments, the Sulu court was terrified of the idea of armed citizenry, and therefore kept a close eye on the production and dispersal of weapons. However, the government was too weak to stop the trade in firearms, and many Sulu owned their own guns, smuggled from Portuguese Mozambique or across the Natal borders by gunrunners. Most of the Sulu firearms were older, muscle-loaded rifles, good for hunting but outdated for military use at this point. Because the Royal Armory did not stockpile guns, regular ammunition and spare parts were in short supply, and the army never trained in the deployment of riflemen. Despite this, many Sulu brought their firearms with them on campaign, knowing full well that they would be much more useful than a shield and spear. Now, unlike the British army, the Sulu army had no baggage train, and therefore was more mobile. It could march up to 20 miles a day, and usually included a large gathering of civilians who drove cattle and carried corn for supplies. After the cattle and corn supplies were exhausted, the army lived on foraging. Now, this created some problems during the Anglo-Sulu War, because the Sulu army operated exclusively on home ground, and therefore lived by foraging from the Sulu king's subjects. Because it was still officially only equipped with spears and shield, the Sulu army was vetted to the offensive maneuver known as the bull's horns or beast horns. In this formation, a regiment of senior warriors formed the chest, while junior regiment would advance left and right of the enemy in an attempt to outflank him and attack him from the rear. The main army under the command of Sedisveo gathered at Alundi and then marched westward in twelve regiments. Meanwhile, the main column under Chelmsford crossed the Buffalo River into Sululand at Rourke's Drift early on the morning of the 11th of January. The buildings at Rourke's Drift had originally been a trading post of a merchant known as James Rourke, and the Sulu therefore called the place Kwajimu, or Jim's Land. It was now a mission station run by Lutheran missionary Otto Witt of the Swedish Church. The buildings of the mission station were converted into a supply depot and hospital for the central column, and a company of the 24th Regiment was left to guard the supplies from Sulu raids. Henry Harford and his 3rd Natal native contingent marched with the central column and left a small detachment of African troops under the command of Corporal Friedrich Schies, who was originally from Switzerland and would distinguish himself later in the fighting at Works Drift. On the 18th of January, the southern column, under Pearson, crossed the Natal Sulu border at the Tugela River. It then marched towards the abandoned mission station of Heshove, which was to be its base of operations for the march to Alundi. Now before the southern column could reach Heshove, it was attacked by around 6,000 Sulu warriors following Sedesveo's orders to slow down the southern column while his main army engaged the central column. Pearson ordered his men to bring forward a new invention, the Gatling gun, and rifle and machine gun fire forced the Sulu to retreat. Meanwhile, the northern column advanced into the mountainous terrain of, of northern Sululand, and its patrols began to attack Sulu mountain strongholds one by one, in order to force the local chiefs into submission. They were still engaged in this task when the Battle of Islandava took place. 
Once the troops of the Central Column had crossed the Buffalo River, they found themselves near the village, or kraal, as African villages were often called, of a chief called Sirayo, a known enemy of Britain. Henry and some troops of the Natal Mounted Police rode to scout the kraal and heard but could not see several Sulu soldiers in the mountainous terrain. The next day, on the 12th of January, the 24th Regiment, with the 3rd Natal Native Contingent in support, attacked Sireo's position, and a firefight soon broke out between Sulu troops lying on the hills and hidden in caves on the hillside, who fired muskets and rifles on the advancing British troops. As the 24th Regiment skirmished with the defending Sulus, the 3rd Natal Native Contingent charged several of these caves and cleared them out in hand-to-hand fighting. Harford accompanied his troops with shots flying over their heads, and one of his men, standing next to him, was wounded when a musket ball hit him in the thigh, breaking his thigh bone. Another one of his men was almost cut in half by a Sulu warrior wielding a stabbing spear when they closed in on the caves. When they finally reached the cave mouth, they discovered several dead Sulu warriors hanging almost upright in the dense bushland, who had been hit by the rifle fire of the 24th Regiment. Once Henry entered the Sulu fortifications, a Sulu rose from behind a rock and put his rifled musket within a few feet of Henry's head and pulled the trigger. Like all percussion cap muskets, this musket was fired by pulling the trigger which released a hammer which hit a cap which then fired the gun. Amazingly, when the Sulu pulled the trigger, the firing hammer broke and the shot did not go off. The Sulu then threw away the useless rifle and ran away, and Henry emptied his six-shot revolver, trying to hit the man. Only one shot hit, but did not inflict a serious wound. Henry now tried to reload his revolver, but the damn thing had jammed, so all he could do was throw it in frustration after the fleeing Sulu. Having earlier lost his sword, and now his revolver, and trusting to his carbine, Henry ran after the fleeing Sulu, shouting for his men to follow him. He caught up with the wounded man at a nearby cave mouth, and shouted at him and Sulu to surrender. This the man did, and Henry now looked into the cave, where he saw a badly wounded Sulu clutching his spear. He shouted into the cave for everyone to come out and surrender, promising them that they would not be molested or harmed in any way. Three men came out from the cave, and Henry now led his four prisoners back to the main line. While Henry and his men had been engaged in the caves, the mounted police and the 24th Regiment had breached the crawl and set it on fire and the battle was now winding down as the remaining Sulu forces retreated. Now Henry Harford was a keen naturalist and an avid collector of insects and butterflies. One of his companions in the battle described a scene where Henry gave them quite a scare, when, at the beginning of their advance up the hill, he dropped to his knees. Rushing to his aid, the man found that he had spotted a rare beetle and was busy putting it into one of the tin boxes he always carried around, should he see a butterfly or a beetle missing from his extensive collection, much of which he regularly sent to natural museums in Britain and southern Africa. After the battle, one of the African soldiers reported to Henry and handed him Henry's sword, spurs, revolver, and field bag containing the captured beetle. This man had loyally followed his commander through the battle, and whenever the bushes tore away one of his possessions, had picked them up before marching on, perhaps showing the affection the Natal native contingent had for this young Sulu-speaking officer. Having destroyed Sirayo's kraal, the central column now marched on into the Bashi Valley. On the 20th of January, 
the column reached the foot of the Islandovana mountain, ten miles by road to Rourke's Drift, and made camp there. The plan was to establish another supply depot at Islandvana and then march on towards Alundi. After setting up camp near Islandvana, General Chelmsford ordered Commandant Lonsdale and Lieutenant Henry Harford to take sixteen companies of the third Natal native contingent to scout the Mangani Gorge, about twelve miles eastward. This was the stronghold of a chief named Machana, and the general ordered that the hills that flanked his plan advance should be thoroughly searched for any signs of the enemy. This Lonsdale and Henry did, and after running into a large formation of Sulu, about fifteen miles from the camp, sent word to the general that they had encountered a large Sulu regiment and possibly the entire Sulu army. The Natal native contingent companies and the Natal mounted police under Major Dartnell, accompanying them on the scouting mission, now camped in front of the Sulu position in a square formation as night fell. Now during the night a sleeping African NCO woke up and seeing a moving shape in the darkness opened fire with his rifle. Now this unexpected rifle fire sent the rest of the Natal native contingent companies into a complete panic and they ran away chased by a cursing Henry Harford mounted on his sturdy pony. In the morning the fleeing companies were mostly back in formation and as they advanced Henry and their companions found that the Sulu had moved on undetected during the night. As they advanced following the Sulu tracks, they were fired upon from a nearby kraal, covered by Machana, and attacked it. The Sulu had dug out firing platforms underneath the great boulders on the hill from where their snipers could fire on the advancing British. A field reporter named Charles Norris Newman, nicknamed Knox by the troops, watched the battle and reported the following. Quote, Lieutenant Harford again distinguished himself by going in alone under a nasty crevice, shooting two men and capturing another. This officer would seem to have a charmed life. May he long keep it was our wish at the time. End quote. Henry's version of the incident was a little different. According to him, he had indeed wounded one of the snipers in the dugout, but the other one was already mortally injured from the rifle fire from the Natal native contingent's officers. There had only been two of them in that dugout, and they had held up the British advance for a good time with her accurate rifle fire. Now it is worth noting that the British attacks on the villages that Henry Harford took part in were mostly firefights, followed by short hand-to-hand fighting with bayonets and spears. Now this can probably be explained by the fact that many Sulu privately owned firearms they used for hunting and self-defense. Now the men defending the crawls tended to be older men who owned their own guns and being no fools preferred them to the traditional spear and shield gear. The royal regiments of the main Sulu army, however, were armed from the royal armory that could not produce anything more sophisticated than a spear and shield, and their use was therefore more prevalent among the main army, although several men brought guns with them when they were summoned to their barracks at the beginning of the war. The battle over the willets was over by 2 p.m., and the African troops of the Natal native contingent, now out of food, were dispersed to collect food from nearby fields. Commandant Lonsdale decided to ride back to camp to ask for supplies for the troops. It was only when he came close to the main camp that he realized where the rest of the Sulu army had gone during the night. It was the morning of the 22nd of January when General Chelmsford received a message from the scouting formation that they had run into enemy regiments. 
he had not expected to encounter Lars formation so early in the campaign, and fearing that Commandant Lonsdale and Major Darknell would be overrun, he decided to reinforce them with six companies of the 24th Regiment, four seven-pounder guns of the Royal Artillery, and a mounted volunteer contingent. As the ground around Island Wana was so rocky, fortifications had not been dug around the camp, and because he wanted his wagons available for supply transport from Rourke's Drift, a fortified wagon lager in the Boer style had not been created. Apparently, the lessons the Boers had learned in African warfare did not apply to the more civilized British army. As Chelmsford left with the reinforcement, he left Lieutenant Colonel Henry Pullain of the 24th Regiment in charge of the camp. The supply train and camp were far from defenseless. They were defended by six companies of the 24th Regiment, two seven-pounder guns of the Royal Artillery, and a little over a hundred mounted men from the Mounted Infantry and Natal Volunteers, as well as four companies of the Natal Native Contingent. Chelmsford also sent word to Lieutenant Colonel Durnford, who was currently at Worth's Drift, with the Af- African troops of the Natal Native Horse, and a rocket battery of the Royal Artillery to move up to Islandvana. Once Durnford arrived, there were around 67 officers and just over 1,700 men in the camp at Islandvana. At 8 a.m. in the morning, four hours after Chelmsford left, cavalry scouts returned to camp and reported that a large Sulu formation was moving up from the northeast. Pullain sent word to Chelmsford that the Sulu were approaching his camp. As gunfire had been reported from the Manjani Gorse, Durnford believed that Chelmsford must have engaged the main Sulu army there. Now this was incorrect. The gunfire was actually the attack of Lonsdale and Henry Harper's Natal native contingent on the Matsana Kral, and not from the main Sulu army. Durnford did not know this, and now wrongly believed that the Sulu had, he had spotted must have been a flanking force trying to attack Chelmsford column from the rear, as he engaged the main Sulu army. He therefore decided to leave the camp and attack this Sulu formation. He asked Pullain for two companies from the 24th Regiment to support his attack, but Pullain, realizing the vulnerability of the camp, denied this request. Durnford left the camp with his cavalry at 11.30 a.m. A group of Natal native horse scouts spotted some Sulu herding cattle a small distance away from the camp and chased them. The herders fled down a steep slope leading down to the Nekwenbeni Valley. When they reached the slope, the men of the Natal native horse reined in their horses. Beneath them in the valley were 20,000 men of the Sulu army who had left Ulundi on the 17th of January and were now resting before their planned attack on the British army. The scouts fled, sending messengers to Polain and Durnford. Meanwhile, the Sulu army formed its traditional attack formation of two flanking formations, the Horns, and the strong center, the chest, and began its advance. While receiving the frantic messages of the Natal native horse, Pullain also received an order from Chelmsford telling him to strike the tents and move the baggage train to join up with Chelmsford's force. Not realizing he was about to be attacked by the entire Sulu army, Pullain simply responded that he was not in a position to currently move the t- camp. He did send the guns of the Royal Artillery to a rocky knoll around 600 yards away from the camp. There, they were supported by two companies of the 24th. Meanwhile, around 1220, the rocket battery from Durnsford Force and its infantry escort from the 3rd Natal Native Contingent 
had dragged behind the cavalry when they suddenly spotted Sulu soldiers on top of a kopje, or flat-top mountain, where they had been headed to position their rocket battery. Major Russell of the rocket battery immediately ordered the company to set up its firing racks, or trows as they were called, and they managed to fire off a single volley of rockets at the attacking Sulu. But the Sulu responded with a volley of rifle fire, which caused panic among the native contingent, which retreated. The Sulu then charged downhill and overran the rocket battery, killing every artilleryman in hand-to-hand fighting, except for three men who managed to outrun their Sulu pursuers. Meanwhile, Durnford's retreating cavalrymen dismounted at a deep dry riverbed, or Donga, and opened fire on their Sulu pursuers. This halted the Sulu advance temporarily, but the native horse and Natal volunteers soon began to run out of ammunition. Messenger dispatched to fetch more ammunition could not find the cavalry's ammunition wagons in the confusion of the camp, and the quartermaster of the 24th refused to supply volunteer troops with ammunition meant for the regular army. The British battle line now stretched from the foothills of Islandwana to the left, where a company of the 24th and some companies of the Natal native contingent held the flank. The line then stretched in a curve along the dry riverbed, where the center was held by the 24th and the two guns of the Royal Artillery. And finally, towards the right flank, on the riverbed, held by Durnford's cavalry, supported by Natal native contingent companies. Almost out of ammunition and about to be overrun, Durnford ordered his men to mount their horses and ride back to camp. Seeing the cavalry right away, the supporting Natal native contingent companies panicked and throwing down their weapons ran away. This left the 24th Regiment Company of Lieutenant Pope, supporting the artillery, completely exposed on its right flank. Poulane, seeing this, ordered his infantry to fall back to camp to form a new defensive position. As the British infantry began to fall back, their suppressive fire disappeared, and a Sulu commander of one of the regiments facing the British center ordered his men to charge the British battle line. Not wishing to be outdone, the regiments on either flank charged as well, and suddenly the entire Sulu front was in motion. The artillery kept firing until the very end, and one gunner was stabbed to death while trying to limber up the cannons so they could be towed away. As the mounted artillery towed the guns away, individual companies of the 24th, cut off from each other, tried to form squares, but the Sulu were too close, and small groups of infantrymen now huddled together firing on the Sulu until their ammunition ran out and they were overrun and stabbed or shot to death. Durnford, wishing to save his beloved Natal native horse, ordered them to break out through the Sulu lines and retreat towards Rourke's Drift. As the last of the British army, including Poulain and Durnford, was cut down in the camp, a group of fleeing men ran down the road towards Rourke's Drift. They soon realized, however, that that a Sulu regiment had already reached the road and was blocking their escape. They weared off to the left down a small valley cut by a stream. There, the two seven-pounders and the rest of the gun crews of the Royal Artillery were lost when the gun carriages became stuck in the rough ground and they were overrun by the pursuing Sulu. One corporal of the Natal native contingent had helped himself to Henry Harford's second pony and managed to ride through the Sulu lines and make it to safety, as did a few lucky survivors. Of the more than 1,700 men who had been in camp that morning, 
only 460 remained, 60 British soldiers and 400 African soldiers, leaving more than 1,200 men dead. We will never know the true number of Sulu casualties at the battle. The Sulu had removed the bodies of their dead before the British returned, but they have been estimated to have been between two and 3,000, so more than double the British casualties in the battle. Nevertheless, this was a great victory for the Sulu, as they had crippled the central invading column, leaving the northern and the southern columns exposed and isolated. Chelmsford, meanwhile, remained blissfully unaware of the situation and continued his advance towards the Mangani Gorge. It was not until a single rider was brought in that he realized what had occurred. This rider was none other than Commandant Lonsdale himself, who had earlier ridden in into camp to collect supplies for the men. Exhausted by his long ride, he had dozed in the saddle as his horse found its way to his tent. When the horse stopped, he suddenly realized that all the men around him were Sulu warriors going through the rackets of the already destroyed camp. The Sulu themselves were astonished at the sudden appearance of a British officer in their midst, and Lonsdale managed to ride out of camp at full gallop and make his way to Chelmsford camp, where despite suffering from heat stroke, he managed to give the general his report. With half his effective fighting strength destroyed and cut off from Rourke's drift, Chelmsford's position was now dire. Things looked equally bleak for the few defenders of Rourke's drift, who suddenly realized that they were the only British fighting force standing between the entire Sulu army and the British colony of Natal. Thank you for listening to the Imperial Africa podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I'll see you in the next episode.